Pastor Mitchell wants me to assure you that he is well. He said, I'm starting to get cards. At the beginning of the week, he was still recovering from his bronchitis, and so we thought it was best probably to have another week to get back to full strength. By the end of the week, he said, Tom, if anything happens, I can preach. Uh, so we have every expectation that Pastor Mitchell will, will be back in the pulpit next Sunday, but in the meantime, it's my privilege to be able to share. And this morning, we're kind of bridging two different things. Uh, if you remember, last week we had the opportunity to look at the Beatitudes and to see how it is that following Jesus is the path for true happiness for the believer. And today we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount to the very next verses, but it also touches on the idea of our daily living as a witness for Jesus Christ. So in some ways we're continuing with the series that uh, Pastor Mitchell started and that he will be continuing next week as we also delve deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. The thing is, in addition to being the path to true happiness, following Jesus is a path, is our way to actually have an influence in this world, to change the world, to have a meaningful impact on those who are around us. We can see as an example in the book of Acts how this was played out. In Acts chapter 1, you have a relatively small crowd of followers of Jesus, 11 apostles, and the total number of those who uh, had gathered and were uh, numbered as those who followed Jesus was about 120 people. Now, 120 in a major city like Jerusalem and in that area of the world, the Roman Empire, is a drop in the bucket. It is insignificant. It is not influential. You cannot expect any uh, development, any influence, any impact, particularly from people who were relatively poor and, and non-influential within society. But as you go through the book, even Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people saved in the city of Jerusalem. And then you read over and over again the Lord adding to the number of the believers and, and that being in the thousands and that being in new geographic regions, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, throughout the Roman Empire, churches established, cities transformed. Then beyond the history that's recorded for us in Acts, the apostles and others uh, going beyond the northern borders of the Roman Empire, going into the Far East, the gospel spreading across North Africa and affecting that continent. To this day, an entire world, billions of people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work of that ragtag group. How does such a tiny band have such a transformational influence? And the influence goes beyond the winning of hearts and souls for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It also goes into the transformation of culture and society. Wherever the gospel has gone, society has changed. Just for example, talking about the principles of equality and justice. Jesus shattered racial taboos in his day. 
He demonstrated respect for women and children and value of human life. And wherever the faith has gone and hearts have been transformed, gradually society has changed. It is in following Jesus that we may have a meaningful impact on the world. And everybody these days says, I want to change the world. Well, here you go. In the verses that we're about to read, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus talks about what it is to have an effect on the world. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. These metaphors are powerful, and hopefully there is much that we can learn under the direction of the Holy Spirit this morning. In some ways, the metaphors parallel each other very well. So we would end up repeating a lot of things if we took it in series. Instead, we're going to look at the themes that Jesus communicates in both of these metaphors. And the first thing that Jesus is talking about is the world in which we live. This world, going back to Genesis chapter 1, is part of God's beautiful and glorious and perfect creation, a reflection of who He is and all that He desires for us. When God had created the heavens of the earth, it was in order, things functioned as they were supposed to function, and the man and the woman that He placed there lived in harmony with each other and in an unbroken person, personal relationship with their Heavenly Father, walking even with him and talking and fellowshipping. This is the world that God created for us and what he is calling us to at the consummation of all things. But, but man introduced sin into the world. And along with sin came corruption, penetrating every corner of creation and penetrating every corner of of the human heart and mind and soul and body with its devastating effects. And so it's not many chapters between Adam and Noah when the world had already descended into horrible sin and rebellion against God. And then it's not many chapters again until the days of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's not many chapters again until the people of Israel are called out by God into the promised land, but surrounded in nations that are caught, surrounded by nations caught in idolatry, and then the nation itself going astray over and over again. And it's really not many chapters until you have 
a Paul in the book of Romans talking about the knowledge of God and his revelation in all of creation, but how we as people rejected the knowledge of God, turned away from him to wickedness and evil and greed and depravity with a continual lust for more. And when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, He's talking about an earth that needs salt. And then he goes on to talk about an earth, a world that needs a light. The world needs salt. In the ancient world, as in today's world, salt has many uses. Flavors our food, put it out on the road in the wintertime to make sure it's safe out there. The most significant use in the ancient world was its preserving effects, preventing corruption and putrefaction and decay. In the crowd that was listening to Jesus on that day, you would have had fishermen, and you would have had people that were getting ready to eat fish. But there was a process from getting to the fishermen to getting to the people eating the fish. And anybody who's been fishing understands that you really have to care for those fish along the way. It's not very long until things start to go and are not very pleasant. And so here you are, a fisherman in the ancient world. There's no ice chest to throw your fish in while you're fishing. There's no refrigerators in which to place them once you get to the shore. You've fished overnight, you come to the shore at the beginning of a hot day and you've got to get your fish to market and so you salt your fish right away to slow down that process of putrefaction. Your fish get to market, still a hot day, people come to the market, buy the fish, take the fish home. There's not a refrigerator to throw the fish in to make sure it doesn't go bad. The fish either needs to be eaten on the spot or preserved, and the method of preservation was salt. Salt cured fish were carried with people as they followed Jesus along with a piece of bread. That's what they ate for lunch because salt prevents decay and prevents corruption. It's not hard to see what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about the world in his day and the world in our day of which we can use the same words, corrupt, decaying, subject to putrefaction. The world needs salt. The world needs light as well. Darkness is a significant symbol in Scripture. First of all, it signifies ignorance. We've already referenced Romans chapter 1, and when Paul says that people have turned their minds from the revelation of God and His glory and majesty, he says their foolish hearts became darkened. Darkness representing the spiritual ignorance when we have rejected the revelation of who God is, what His character is like, His holiness, and His expectations of his creation. Darkness also describes evil. The Apostle John, quoting Jesus, men, women, people love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. 
and then darkness also used to represent the resulting condemnation and death. Jesus himself speaking of the day of judgment and those who will be cast into outer darkness. Judgment for sin, eternal condemnation. Jesus was speaking within a world caught in darkness, ignorance, evil, and death, a world that needed light. That's not how the world thinks of itself. Just about every commentary that I read this week mentioned late 19th century Europe and the United States. We'd just come out of the Enlightenment. We'd evolved to a new level of understanding, an era of peace on the horizon. And yes, World War I came, but World War I was the war to end all wars, right? Well, then the rest of the 20th century, so bloody, so vile, World War II, and then the ensuing wars. But somehow we forgot. I don't know if you've noticed that in the context of the war in Ukraine, a lot of people are scratching their heads. We don't do that anymore, right? Have you heard that kind of thinking? We've gotten past that. That's not part of our Western culture and values. Well, guess what? It is. We do that. The darkness and the evil still exist in the world and in the human heart. And denying it is simply deceiving ourselves. As one preacher wrote, the world is bad, sinful, and evil, and any optimism with regard to it is not only thoroughly unscriptural, but it has actually been falsified by history itself. Jesus looks at a world in which we live and sees it as a place that needs salt and needs light. And then the next theme is the Christian within that world. What is our place within such a dark place? And how can we have an influence? He starts out with a tiny little word, but actually makes it stand out sharply with a grammatical emphasis on you. You are the salt of the earth. He's not talking about a whole group. He's talking to the individuals that he was addressing when he shared the Beatitudes. You who are poor in spirit, you who mourn sin, you who have been brought to a place of humility before the Lord, you who hunger for righteousness and have been filled up with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You, sitting in that row, you, follower of Jesus Christ, you are the salt of the earth. Notice that as well. It's not a command. It's not an exhortation. It's a statement of fact. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are living out the Beatitudes within your context, you are the salt of the earth. So what's the function of salt? 
in the earth. How does it work? Well, it works by spreading it over whatever it is that you want to preserve and allowing it to dissolve and to penetrate, to permeate that surface and to accomplish its preserving function. Imagine for a second somebody who wants to preserve that fish and takes their salt and pours it in a pile on the head of the fish. That's not going to prevent putrefaction and decay, is it? It has to be spread out. One commentator said, when the church gathered becomes like a salt warehouse, it has missed Jesus' basic lesson that salt must be spread out within its context. We spread the salt over the surface of that fish and it is preserved. We spread our influence throughout our culture, our society, the spheres in which we move and have our effect. This was stated in very earthy terms early on in our ministry when Miriam and I had gone to Russia, and, and we joined a team of very green Christian workers. None of us had been overseas. We were just starting to live in a new country. We were forming as a team. But our field director was someone who had served for decades in another context, was on the cusp of retirement, and was spending his first two years trying to help us, all of us green missionaries, actually learn to work together and to, to have a positive effect within that country. And one time we were gathered. We love to gather. Of course, everyone does fellowship with each other, to enjoy each other's company, to worship together. And he encouraged that, but he also reminded us at one of those gatherings, missionaries are like manure. They do a lot of good if they're spread out, but keep them piled together too long and things begin to stink. It's true of believers as well. Salt functions best when it is spread out and having its preserving effect, penetrating culture, and stopping the decay that is going on around us. This takes us back again to the church and the book of Acts. Yes, we read about the church in its daily witness in the temple courts and from house to house, teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So in general terms, describing worship and life and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as you go through the book, you see the various contexts spelled out for us. You see the gospel proclaimed in the marketplace or at the workplace. The Apostle Paul making tents. Perhaps you've been to a market in the Near East, or at least you understand what it is to go to the state fair and to the pavilions where you have uh, place after place set up with a craftsman doing their work. Well, Paul was one of the craftsmen. He was so in his tents. But he was sure that whoever came through his place of business heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read about believers going into hostile places. The synagogue where there were those who did not want to hear the message of Jesus the Christ. Or the philosopher's corner in Athens 
where this new idea was subject to mockery. We read about a vibrant Christian witness in prison, even as the doors were thrown open and the prisoners, the Christian prisoners, following the rule of law, staying, waiting, joyfully with singing, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Even the Apostle Paul in court, defending his life, looks at King Agrippa and says, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Always an influence for the gospel in every context. Yes, sometimes specifically sent with a message, but most often simply as they were going in their life, in their spheres of influence, spread out and transforming culture. The next metaphor is that of light. If salt is influential presence, then light is life-giving presence. I know it's not Christmas, but we can still quote Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, a people living in darkness have seen a great light. Of course, that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus being the light of the world means that he brought life to the world. Into that dark place of decay and spiritual darkness and death, Jesus brought life. And of course, that moment happened on the cross. He had no sin. He had no darkness. There was no reason for him to die. He went to the cross in our place. He took our sin upon himself. He died the death that we deserved so that then everyone who believes in him can receive forgiveness of sins and life. And now he invites us to walk in the light. And the incredible thing is that he who said, I am the light of the world, said, you are the light of the world. An influential, life-giving presence in this very dark place. You, the poor in spirit, the meek, the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're the light of the world. The illustration he uses then is that of a town that is built on a hill and was unmistakable within the darkness. Our family has adopted as a very minor hobby stargazing. We probably do something maybe two or three times a year in order to see some heavenly phenomenon. Uh, last year we went out and saw that comet. Remember that new comet that they had discovered and now it's disappeared, broke up, and so it will never be seen again. But we were actually able to get a glimpse of it together. Now, if this becomes a hobby, you, one thing you become familiar with is the dark map, a place that shows 
the, the best areas in your area in which to view the heavens, the dark places. The point is that if you are located next to a source of light, it will hinder you from being able to see the heavens well. And it's not just because it's really bright and it affects your eyes. It is because the light of a city actually reflects off of the atmosphere and particles within the atmosphere and creates almost a filter that's really hard to see through. And so you need to find places where there is less reflected light, less ambient light, so that you can have a good view of the heavens. By the way, if you're interested, it's not the darkest place in the world, but the nearest place is between Pittsburgh and Siler City. Actually, but almost exactly halfway, those are two relatively small towns, and you can get a decent view of the heavens without going too far. But if you want to get to a really dark place, the best one on the East Coast would be on top of a mountain in Northern Virginia or the West Virginia area, several places in that area where you're far away from just about any city and really have a great view of the heavens. We were able to take a trip out to one of those places a couple of years ago to view a meteor shower and seeing the Milky Way spread across the sky and an incredible view of the galaxies and the constellations. It really was amazing. But you know what? There was still a city off in the distance. And in the midst of all of that darkness, it just stood out on the horizon. Well, in the ancient world, there wasn't any artificial light. If you were out at night, the only light around was the light of the heavens. The blackness was inky, almost palpable. But if there was a city on a hill with hundreds of houses that had their oil lamps lit, it was unmistakable. It stood out in sharp and brilliant contrast to the world around. And that is what Jesus is talking about in the life of the believer. In the dark world that Jesus described and in which we understand from the Scriptures, we don't just stand out, but it's sharp contrast, bringing truth where there is ignorance, living out holiness in the midst of evil, proclaiming light and life in place of condemnation and death. This is how Jesus describes our presence and our witness as his followers in the world. And this is what he says we are. Keep in mind, he was not talking to people of power or worldly influence. He was talking to the weak things of the world. But the transformation was astounding in the power of the Holy Spirit with the brilliance of a vibrant testimony and a life well lived. I'm reminded at this point of a revival that I read about this week in a small town in England. This was not an earth-shaking country transformation transforming event. But it was a cultural transforming event. It was in the church of Richard Baxter. The Holy Spirit moved within the church in such a way that there was revival. 
And people's lives were so changed that it began to have an influence on friends and neighbors and those in the workplace, so that more were one to faith in Jesus Christ. And the revival began to spread from that church into that town. And it continued in such a way that the culture, the society was changed. Addiction went down. Abuse went down. The culture was changed from the inside out, from the bottom up, because of a people that became light and life, had a transforming presence and influence on their friends and neighbors and eventually on their whole town. It wasn't a church that convinced the government to pass new laws that would somehow change society. It was a church that lived and believed the gospel and was transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that led to transformation of the society around them. That's the place of the Christian in this world that Jesus described. There's another theme that runs throughout, and that is the Christian who is like the world. Jesus jumps into it right away. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Salt that has lost its saltiness is speaking, of course, of the lack of transformational presence, of lost influence, of not having any preserving effect on the world around us. It's speaking of a people who participate in the culture rather than exercise influence on it. Speaking of a church that is more like the world than it is like Jesus. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not speaking specifically of Cary Alliance Church here, but I am speaking of the church within our country that in so many ways is almost indistinguishable from the world around it. A church where, for example, the divorce rate or use of pornography is barely distinguishable from the world around. A church where children rebel against their parents and where grown-ups rage and insult others on the internet. A church where politicians are turned into idols and where an ideology is looked upon as a gospel. A church where our use of money or our accumulation of possessions hardly looks any different from that of our neighbors around us. That is a salt that has lost its saltiness. And Jesus' words are strong. It's not useful for anything except to be transferred, tra uh, trampled underfoot. It's interesting to look at the word that Jesus uses for describing the loss of saltiness. It is actually not a chemical word. It's a word that has to do with the mind and the heart. If the salt becomes foolish or stupefied, if the salt plays the fool, the emphasis is on the, the logical contradiction, the ridiculousness of the idea. Salt can't lose its saltiness. If it's not salty, then it's not salt. 
Christians following Jesus can't not have an influence on the world around them. If we're not having an influence on the world around, if we're not standing out against the world around, then there's something wrong with the nature of our faith. The idea is then extended to that of the light. Let's go back to that ancient world and that inky black night and the, light, the lamp has been snuffed for the night and everybody's gone to bed and one of the kids gets sick. Obviously you need light, right? So somebody gets up and finds the lantern and lights that little lantern, puts it down and then puts a bowl on top of it so that it's dark again. Well, that's ridiculous. It's insane. The whole purpose of lighting that light was to lift it up so that its light would penetrate the room so that people can see and so that you can take care of whatever needs to be done. A light hidden is useless. It's a contradiction. It doesn't make any sense. The whole point is to diffuse and to disseminate truth and holiness and life. And if that's absent, then it should be cause to question the nature of our faith. To wrap it up, we'll use some of the same terms that Jesus uses to wrap up this section of the Sermon on the Mount. The Christian changing the world the Christian with a world-transforming influence is a Christian who so lets his or her light shine before others that they see their good deeds and give glory to God in heaven. First of all, we have to recognize the fact that Jesus is talking about. Once again, he doesn't say, be light. You are light. It's a wonderful, glorious truth that we can recognize and grasp hold of, but also grapple with. What does my light look like? How much does it stand out? And so recognizing the fact we wrestle with that and examine our lives to see what our life is like. We watch our walk to see what kind of influence we are having on those around us. Jesus describes that influence that we need to examine ourselves for as twofold. First of all, people can see it. It stands out. To what extent does our life stand out? To what extent is it visible and attractive? That people see, wow, in a world of competition, that's a humble, meek person. Wow, in a world of conflict, that's a peacemaker. In a world characterized by arrogance, that's someone who is poor in spirit. How much do we really stand out so that people see, notice, and are attracted to our life? But there's something that goes beyond simply seeing. 
There's a knowledge or a comprehension that is involved. In other words, our life is also a clear and compelling witness. People don't look at the life of the believer and think, gee, I wonder where that came from. They know that the glory goes to God because the witness has been clear. Letting our light shine not only means living in the way that Jesus has prescribed, but it means talking in the way that Jesus talked, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom in such a way that is clear and compelling. And so people are one for the kingdom. So we let our light shine in such a way that it is visible, noticeable, and attractive, but we also let our light shine in such a way that it is reflective. It reflects all the beauty and the holiness and the glory and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ to those around. And then it reflects the glory, the attention back to God, not to oneself. We're talking about self being forgotten in poverty of spirit and meek humility and hunger and thirst for righteousness. No attention to me and what I'm doing. No desire for glory-seeking. Always pointing to Jesus Christ. And so letting our light shine in such a way that others see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer today is that you would take these words and use them to bless and to encourage your people. Thank you that every one of us who's a follower of Jesus Christ is light. We don't deserve that designation. And sometimes we can beat ourselves up because we fall so far short. I know that I do. But in speaking these words, Jesus, you were telling us what we are and calling us to do that well. And so we pray that you would pour out your Spirit on us to sanctify, that you would create in us such a hunger and thirst for righteousness that we would come to you daily to be filled. And that that righteousness and everything that goes along with it would just be brilliant and God-honoring. Use us, Lord, for your glory and for the good 
of those you that have brought into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.